0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. The back of the Ford Transit bus reeked of diesel fumes as Muth began focusing on the droplets of water running down the side window. All around him, men were making nervous, boy-like chatter, crackling tasteless and unflattering jokes about British women walking along the sides of the road. Muth didn't like the rude comments, jokes, or remarks. It wasn't that he was too moral or educated. But he simply wasn't an 18-year-old, peach-faced kid anymore. At the ripe age of 24, Jay Muth felt like an old man among his peers. Most of the men around him were 18 or 19. When Muth was in Basic, he was given the nickname Pappy, but that nickname was soon taken away when a 27-year-old radio man was added to his group as they were shipped off to war-torn Europe. He was, at first, glad that he was no longer labeled the old man in the group, but soon, to his shock and surprise, he missed the nickname. Sitting next to him in the aisle was the most annoying kid on the entire bus, a 19-year-old kid named David Marsh. Marshy, as he was called, was from a small farming community in Pennsylvania called Downington, right on the Brandywine River. Muth knew this because Marshy never stopped talking about it. It was the first thing that Muth knew about Marshy when he met him in basic training almost eight months ago. Muth thought for sure that when he and Marshy went their own separate ways for their technical and gunnery training, that he would be rid of the adolescent firecracker. But in some cosmic-like brand of humor, the first person Muth ran into in New York City on the gangplank was none other than Marshy. Marshy was average height, thin, had deep set dark eyes, thick arched eyebrows, long face and a thick rounded defined chin. He always seemed to push the limit with his facial hair as it was always kept just under what was considered appropriate by some lenient officers. Marshy's most notable feature was his hair. Marshy always kept his thick dark black hair in a high pompadour. Which on anyone else would have looked ridiculous. But because Marshy was ridiculous, the hairstyle matched him perfectly. By contrast, Mooth looked like a football player. He was sturdy, had a square face, shaved brown hair, and kept no facial hair, although, he could grow an envious mustache that would put everyone else's aviator mustaches to shame. His hands bore the callousness and scars of a troubled youth. Muth rarely smiled, rarely laughed, and often had to be the voice of reason among his peers. Having grown up in Irvine, California, and later living in Burbank, Muth was not a fan of the dreary, wet landscape that was England. The only ones who seemed happy to be sent to England was Marshy and his group of buffoons, who all seemed to be fond of the cold, wet, and miserable place. To them, England looked just like home, but for Mooth, it was the farthest from home he could possibly be. It was as Mooth looked out onto the vast English countryside that he began feeling deeply homesick. Looking down at his watch, he saw that it was 11 minutes after 8, which meant that it was midnight back home in Burbank. He wondered how his wife Beth was sleeping. Beth was 27 weeks pregnant with their first child, and as of Beth's last letter, she had been having a tough time at night getting sleep since the baby was kicking and hiccuping so bad. Just as Muth began thinking of names that Beth had picked out for their child, the bus made a sudden turn to the right, in front of a hotel and pub called the Cock Inn. <laughs> The Cock Inn. That's my new favorite building. Called out Marshy. They're called pubs here, you dumbass. Called out Marshy's friend, who Marshy called Apple. Whatever they're called, I'm getting me a glass of whatever they're selling there as soon as possible. I need a goddamn drink. Marshy declared. Marshy, you've been saying that since we left New York. Called out someone from the front of the bus. That's not true. Muth, have I... Every single day, Marshy. Every single day. Muth fired back much of the chuckles of Marshy's friends. As Marshy looked back at his group of friends with a look of amusement, the entire bus's mood changed when they saw the upcoming fence and airfield entrance up ahead. Muth watched as the bus stopped at the gate and was then escorted onto the base, arriving at the headquarters building. Stepping outside... Muth was astonished by what he was saying. He was expecting the airbase to be quickly thrown together with buildings made out of tents, not sprawling English manors, and half-cylinder structures. One by one, the men were taken into the base headquarters, and soon, the men all arrived back outside with huts that they were to report to. Muth, standing by himself, began walking through the mist and towards the center of the airfield. As he did, Marshy and his group of friends were comparing hut numbers and were all disappointed to find out that none of them would be in the same hut. In fact, only Marshy and his friend Shitbird would be in the same bomb squadron. It was when Marshy called out that he was assigned to the 530th Bombardment Squadron, Hut 43, that Muth quickly turned around and exclaimed, You did not just say you were assigned to Hut 43, did you? Marshy, looking back, nodded his head and replied, Yeah, Hut 43. Why, were you assigned to that, Muth? Muth looked down at his piece of paper and saw the handwritten letters, 530th Squadron, Captain Bacchus, Hut 43. Taking in a huge sigh, Muth walked towards the center of the airfield, with Marshy annoying him along the way. Nearly 15 minutes later, Both Marshy and Muth arrived in front of Hut 43, and Marshy, not wanting to let his anxiety stop him, burst through the door. Inside the hut, Marshy and Muth were surprised to see four individuals still lying in their beds, acting groggy and hungover, as they all tried to figure out why there were two strangers standing in their hut. Hey, is this Hut 43? Asked Marshy. It is. Who the fuck are you? Asked Willie. I'm Sergeant David Marsh, my friends call me Marshy, and this here is Tech Sergeant Jay Muth. We've been assigned to your crew, apparently. At this, Wooly looked over at Mills, and Mills, lifting up his head slowly, replied with, You, ugly fuck, are you a gunner? Fuck you, buddy. I guarantee I've claimed more broads in between the sheets than your face ever has. Marshy fired back. Yeah, you're a gunner. And you, Hitler's wet dream. You a radio man? Mills shot back. Uh, yeah, I'm a radio man. Are we in the right place? Booth asked. At this, Mills looked over at Beans, Tommy, and the rest of his crew with looks of sadness as he was coming to the reality that these two men were here to replace Pally and Skimpy. (laughs) 26 minutes later, April 29th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0830. Jack was lying in his bed when he swore he heard the sounds of a duck quacking. However, he soon realized what the sound he heard was when he heard O'Brien comment, Oh, dear Lord, Sheila, it's too goddamn early for this. Giggling from Sheila and Brolin soon followed. Jack rolling out of his bed looked over at the group of men and caught a glimpse of Coca suddenly sitting up in his bed. Brolin immediately shouted, Coca not on the... But it was too late. A very hungover Coca retched all over the floor next to his bed. While grossed out, Sheila and Broan began laughing to the point of turning blue. Jack soon joined in in the uncontrollable laughter. As Jack attempted to recover himself from laughing, he then looked across the hut and saw that the boss's belongings had officially been cleaned out. Hey, where's where's the boss? Jack asked the group. He moved his stuff this morning to his hut in Dixie Bluffs, O'Brien replied. Dixie Bluffs? Jack asked. O'Brien, who couldn't stand the smell of Coca's vomit, got out of his bed and proceeded to walk over to Jack's bed. As he did, he explained, "'Yeah, that's where all the base personnel, that's where they're all assigned to live. That includes squadron commanders. I don't actually know why they call it Dixie Bluffs.' "'Well, that's odd. How come I've never heard of that? How come Texas and the other squadron commanders never stay there?' Jack asked. "'You know, technically they're supposed to. Take Griffith, for example.' When Griffith was squadron commander, he didn't want to stay in a separate section from the men and his crew, so he kept his stuff there and got mail from there and made it look like on the books he was staying there, but he wanted to stay in the same hut that his crew members were. I assume Texas did the same thing, or simply just didn't have enough time to move his stuff over. What about replacement pilots? Jack asked. Well, Griffith's crew never received one. Again... Griffith was in charge of that, so I assume he never assigned his crew a full-time pilot. His co-pilot acted as like the chief since he was a higher rank. Jack paused for a moment and asked, All that to stay in the same hut as your crew? Well, it's just like how Brolin said. Men like Griffith never wanted the responsibility of being a squadron commander. Their main priority was always to their crew, and they had a hard time shaking that. You know, if, if Brolin was called to be a squadron commander... I'd expect him to do the same. As Jack listened, he wondered if the reason why the boss was so quick to pack up and move into his own bunk was because he couldn't face being around the men who he had put in harm's way over trying to gain glory for himself. Also, he wondered if the boss did what he did because he had nothing to stay for in that hut. Jack knew the boss had developed harsh feelings towards Jack and the boss was responsible for both Andy and Rosie's demise, so perhaps seeing their empty beds and seeing Jack on a daily basis was too much for him. Overall, though, Jack was sadly relieved that the boss was no longer in the hut. The boss was sitting in his new office, which was located at High Brass Hall on the first floor, directly underneath where Colonel Poole's office was located. The gloomy, cloud-riddled sky illuminated the dim-lit office through three diamond-leaded windows. In this 400-square-foot room sat four desks, each of them belonging to one of the four squadron commanders on the base. Sitting next to the door was the desk of the 528th Squadron Commander, Major Elliot Gould. His desk was covered in papers and a ceramic coffee mug rested next to the desk lamp. Sitting along the far wall, underneath one of the windows, was the desk of the 529th Squadron Commander, Captain Kevin Fagan. His desk was mostly empty. The only thing to prove that Captain Fagan occupied the space was his nameplate that hung on the wall above his desk and a picture of he and his crew just after they arrived in England. Finally, the desk sitting opposite of the bosses in the middle of the room was the desk of Captain Eric Koth, the squadron commander of the 531st Squadron. His desk was a mess of papers and his ashtray was full and spilling over onto his desk. The boss was repulsed at Koth and Gould's desks since he believed that the top of a desk reflected the personality and leadership of the man who inhabited it. He knew that these men wouldn't keep their beds and living quarters this filthy, and so there was no excuse for these men to leave their desks looking the way that they were. On the other hand, the boss took pride in his space. He had spent the morning moving his stuff into his own private hut and organizing his new office with precision and pleasure. As the boss sat back in his chair, taking in the room, he began to feel the weight of silence pressing against his psyche. He expected to hear the sounds of typewriters and men making early morning phone calls, but from his office, he could barely hear the footsteps of Colonel Poole upstairs, even though he knew he was up there. Suddenly, a young officer entered into the room and arrived at the boss's desk. Captain Backus, these are for you, the officer said, setting down a packet of papers in the incoming mail bin sitting at the edge of his desk. What's this? asked the boss. List of names from your squadron. List of names? Yes, sir, for the condolence letters. Is there anything I can get you, sir? The boss's heart began to race as he grabbed the packet and began looking through the list of names. On each of the three pages was a list consisting of first and last names, along with their parent, spouse, or legal guardian's name. The boss was to write every one of these parents, spouses, or guardians a letter of condolence for their son, father, brother, or husband having died or gone missing on the mission of Brunswick. All ten names from From Texas With Love were listed, each one with M.I.A. next to their names. Also on that list were the names from Cap and Kids. Oddly enough, all but the Tail Gunner and Ball turret Gunner had POW listed next to their names, with their tail gunner and ball turret gunner having killed in action listed next to their names. Just below their names were the following. Isaac Rosenthal, killed in action. Andrew Moreland, killed in action. Charles Knight, killed in action. And Anthony Palladino, killed in action. Captain Bacchus, asked the officer. "'knocking the boss out of his trance of sadness and guilt. "'Um, I'm sorry? "'Is there anything I can get you? "'Perhaps a cup of coffee? "'No, that's it's okay. Thank you, Lieutenant,' the boss responded. "'As the officer left the office, "'the boss stared at the packet of papers "'and began to wonder how on earth he was going to write "'all 24 letters of men that were captured, missing, or killed because of him.' The enlisted men's mess hall was nearly half empty since most of the men on the airfield had either already eaten or were waiting for lunch the food was the last of the morning's breakfast so the powdered eggs were more discolored than normal and the breakfast hash was cold and stale the coffee was room temperature and the mess attendants hadn't refilled the ketchup bottles yet tommy was violently attempting to put whatever ketchup he could on top of his hash to cover the disgusting taste and bad texture. Sitting on either side of him was Mills and Willie who watched Tommy with amusement. Meanwhile sitting across the table was Beans and the two new boys. At first glance Mills didn't like either of the two new boys. Marshy seemed immature even more so than Tommy. He held his fork and spoon like they were shovels and he ate like a cow. Muth, on the other hand, looked like trouble. He sat with his elbows on the table, chest flat, back straight, and his eyes locked onto Mills, Tommy, and Willie. The only person so far who attempted to be friendly with Muth and Marshy was Beans, but Mills chalked that up to Beans, his good old church boy-like nature. Mills knew deep down that Beans hated that these two new boys existed. Jesus, Tommy, you're going to pound that thing like it's your pecker on a Friday night, Willie asked. Yep, I gotta believe there's more in there. Just gotta believe it, Tommy countered as he kept hitting his hand on the bottom of the ketchup bottle. Soon after, an airman sitting behind the two new boys leaned backwards and said, Hey, weather forecast tomorrow is calling for more rain. Brass is issuing 24-hour passes. Yeah, you said that the other day, Mac, and it ended up being bullshit called out Mills. It's not bullshit. I just came from the officer's mess hall and I heard a cockface say it himself. Marshy looked up, confused, and asked, Cockface? Mills begrudgingly explained, Yeah, uh, Major Matson. Why do you call him Cockface? Marshy asked with a childlike grin. Seeming even more annoyed, Mills replied, You, you just, you had to be there. Uh, Mac, so you're saying... That we should have passes in our hands Within the hour Max soon nodded his head Willie added I'm taking the first fucking ride to London Replenishing my cigar stash Now I'm gonna find myself a girl Even if it means I have to hit one over the head And drag him back to my cave That's when Mills replied You know actually that's not a bad idea What going caveman on a broad Is Brit tail really that hard to catch around here Marshy asked Mills, rolling his eyes, replied, No, going to London. We should all go. That's when Marshy cut Mills off by saying, Oh, that's swell. How close is London from here? Wait, how are we going to get there? Mills quickly hurled back, Oh, no, no, no. I I didn't mean you two. I meant me and the crew. We were assigned to your crew. What are you saying? You seem to have a problem, pal, and I don't appreciate it. Fired Muth. Look, don't get him wrong. Willie softened. But you haven't earned a trip to the mecca of American shervishmen, okay? Fly yourself a mission, have a few bullets fired at you, and then you and the rest of your greenie friends can make a trip down. What the fuck? Swore Marshy. Greenies, huh? Is that what you think about us? Muth asked. What are you talking about? Mills asked. Ever since we arrived at the hut this morning, you've had a shitty look on your face like we're a pile of shit that you stepped in. Now, before you say anything else, I suggest you take a step outside and come back with the goddamn respect that me and Sergeant Marsh deserve. As Muth talked, Mills showed he saw and felt nothing to fear by Muth's stiff body posture and threats by digging into his pocket for a cigarette and putting one in his mouth and lighting it up. After Muth was done, Mills allowed a moment of silence before he puffed out a big ball of smoke and replied, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like you or Donkey Face. Out of nowhere, Marshy threw a full cup of coffee at Mills' face, and before Mills could even wipe the coffee from his eyes, Beans had tackled Marshy, and the two fell onto the floor, wedged between their table and the one behind them. Muth soon jumped on Beans, taking him by the shoulders, and with all of his might, shoved him off Marshy, but was soon met with blows from Willie's fists. Within a matter of seconds, there was an all-out brawl among the men of Loda Bull, with the men around them watching with amazement. Beans was soon pouring blood from his nose, after Marshy slammed his heel against his face in an attempt to keep Beans off of him. Willie and Tommy were both taking on Muth, who was defending himself quite impressively from their rage-filled blows. Mills soon leaped over the table and threw himself on top of Marshy, as he was trying to get up. Mills they began throwing punch after punch, most of which were striking Marshy's face. To add to the chaos, Beans and the others were soon overwhelmed when Marshy's friends came to their rescue and soon Mills was laid on the top of the table and had Marshy's friend Apple straddling him, punching his fists into his head and face. As Mills began to feel blood filling his mouth, he and the others of his crew were saved by a group of officers who broke up the fight. Do you like war movies? Do they get your blood going? If so, I have the perfect, perfect podcast for you. This is not an affiliation. This isn't like a, we're sponsoring them, they're sponsoring us, so I got to mention them. This is just me strictly telling you about a podcast I love. The podcast is called Danger Close. It's a war film podcast where three hosts, a theater director, a movie critic, and a veteran, Come together each week to talk about a different war movie. Guys, this is a fantastic podcast. If you want to get into war films on just more than just a surface level, this is perfect. The hosts are phenomenal. The research is impeccable. And the quality of it is just phenomenal. I can't recommend this enough. So if you guys enjoy podcasts, you want more podcasts to make your day go by faster at work or you wanted something to listen to while you're cleaning house or trying to fall asleep or you're driving in the car, guys, this is a perfect, perfect, perfect podcast to listen to. Danger Close, check it out for yourself. If you do, go onto the discussion page on Facebook and tell them that Aaron from Cancer34 Studios and Snafu Podcast sent you. Thank you guys so much. Do you want to get more out of SNAFU? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, it's important, free resources to help you find out more about the 8th Air Force in World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the ones depicted in SNAFU. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, and free YouTube videos, and much, much, much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. An hour later, the men involved in the lunchroom brawl were standing in the hallway that led to the squadron commander's offices. Mills and the others had gotten cleaned up and patched up at the hospital. Mills' nose was broken. He also had a fractured eye socket, a fractured cheekbone, and significant cuts on his top gum. Beans, Tommy, and Willie each had bloodied noses and busted lips. However, Willie's fists were bruised and swollen from his two broken knuckles. Standing along with them was Muth, Marshy, and his friends, Shitbird, Apple, Redman, Cleveland, and Bullseye. The one who looked banged up the most was Marshy, who had a black eye and a busted chin. As the men stood there, they saw a familiar face walk past them. It was Jack. Jack had been called into the boss's office and didn't know why. Upon passing by members of his crew, he slowed down his pace and stared heavily at them, especially Mills. What the hell happened to you guys? Behind his swollen face, Mills began to speak up. Fuck face over there. Who the fuck are you calling fuck face? Do you want your face caved in some more? Marshy hurled over. Me and you, one on one, let's go. Mills hurled back as he began to lunge over at Marshy, causing almost another brawl. However, this time, Jack was there to stop the fight. Alright, 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 alright. I got my answer. Jesus Christ, this is going to be fun. Can you guys just not pummel each other in the hallway of High Brass Hall while I discuss your fates? Jack asked. Oh, don't put me on mess duty, Jack. Beans sheepishly asked. I'll do my best, Beans. Jack said as he began walking to the boss's office. Oh, uh, hey, Jack. Willie called out. Yeah, Willie? These are our two new replacements, Willie said, pointing to both Mooth and Marshy. Jack, with an awkward grin appearing on his face, looked at both Mooth and Marshy and replied, Oh, boy. It's nice to meet you guys. As Jack entered the office, Tommy looked over at Willie and said, Yeah, that was the perfect way to introduce them. Nice, Willie. To which Willie replied, "Yeah, get it out of the way, you know? Upon entering into the office, Jack looked and saw the boss was standing at his desk with his back to the front door. Jack quickly took in the room and then broke the silence with, Nice place you got here, Jack. The boss began, We've got a problem. Our crew member started an all-out brawl with some replacements, and Colonel Poole found out about it. As Jack listened, he noticed that the boss talked with his back to him. He was looking down at his desk at a packet of papers as he talked. Yeah, I saw them when I was uh, walking down the hallway, Jack replied. Do you realize how bad this makes you and I look? You and I? Yes. You know, I might be the squadron commander now but my name is still associated with Loda Bull and the men who operate her. Now, before I bring them in, I need you to understand that you need to keep these men in line, for my sake and for yours. Jack paused and mulled over what the boss had just told him. Turning around, the boss asked, Do I make myself clear, Lieutenant? Yes, sir. Good. Now bring them in. Jack took in a deep breath and proceeded to call the men from his crew, along with the two new replacements in. Once the men arrived inside the office, the six men proceeded to stand at attention behind the boss's desk. The boss turned around and faced the men and began saying, I personally do not care who started what or who was all involved. What I care about is where we go from here, gentlemen. Now, I understand the circumstances in which you boys have been thrown into. That does not excuse the behavior. Colonel Poole has given me full rein on setting the ramifications and punishments for your actions. So, therefore, I am revoking all passes for the next two weeks, as well as assigning each of you to serve a full day in the mess kitchen. The boss then proceeded to hand each man a sheet of paper which had the time and date that each man was scheduled to serve in the mess kitchen. Now, you will report to Lieutenant Howard at 0400 on the days listed below. If your day falls on the day of a mission, then you will be grounded and a replacement will be assigned to your crew. Is that clear? Yes, sir, the men replied. Good. Now, get yourselves to the showers and get cleaned up. Y'all look like shit. At this, the men left the office in orderly fashion, with Jack being the last one to leave. Forty-five minutes later, the boys all returned from getting a hot shower and a fresh set of green fatigues. Mills, while his hair was nicely combed and smelled fresh and clean, he still looked horrible. His left eye was swollen, almost to the point of being shut. He returned to his hut with a bag of ice in his hand, which he kept over his eye periodically. The boys had walked back to their hut in silence, and once Beans closed the door, that's when Willie said, You know, you new boys, you're going to be the death of me, you know that, right? Why don't you just shut the fuck up, Willie? Mills barked. Willie paused and said, Yeah, you're just mad that you got your ass kicked by a twig. Hey, Apple might be a twig, but that kick can fuck somebody up. Marshy clarified as he slid his footlocker to the foot of the bed that he claimed, which used to be Skimpy's bed. "'Where did you meet that kid anyways?' asked Tommy, who took a seat on his bunk and faced Willie and Marshy. "'I have actually known Apple ever since grammar school. He lived less than a mile from my house. We unknowingly joined the same day and we both volunteered for the Army Air Corps.' "'And where are you from again?' asked Willie. Dowdington, Pennsylvania?' Where the tin fuck to is at? It's just outside Philadelphia, along the Brandywine River. Brandywine? Someone should mix those two things together and see what it tastes like, replied Tommy. Do you ever think before you speak, Tommy? Anyways, sorry about that. Philly, huh? Well, anyone that's a Philly fuck is someone I can fucking respect. You know what? Here, to show you my loyalty, now that you are part of the crew and all, I want you to have this. Willie dug into his pocket and pulled out a gold cigarette case and handed it to Marshy. He then dug back into his pocket and walked over to Muth's bed, which was Pally's bunk, and pulled out a gold and silver money clip with $17 folded and pinned under the clip. Thanks. Muth skeptically replied, Welcome. More where that came from. Look, I'm a very generous guy, okay? And I apologize that we got off on the wrong foot. Now, if you gentlemen would care to excuse me, i gosh got some business to take care of. Willie then proceeded to head towards the front door and left the hut, leaving behind him a stunned group of men. As Willie was leaving the hut, that's when Tommy came running out and asked Willie, Willie, what was that all about? What? You giving them gifts. Less than an hour ago, we were pummeling each other. Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. Willie interrupted as he continued walking down the road. I'm offended that you don't know me better. What does that mean? Tommy asked. What, you really think that I would give those two shitheads my prized possessions? Tommy paused for a moment and processed what Willie had said. Lifting his head back up and seeing Willie walking away from him, asked, Whose stuff was that? Willie, with a smile on his face, said, I took the sugar at case from California Boys Foot Locker and the money clip I swiped from the fight after I saw it fall from Brandy Wine's pant pocket. You son of a bitch, Tommy replied with a grin appearing on his face. Jack returned to his hut and was surprised to see two new faces standing in the hut along with Brolin and O'Brien. Do you guys make new friends, Brolin? Jack asked. Yes, I am. Brolin softly said in the background as the two new faces introduced themselves. The first man, whose things were sitting on Andy's bed, was a tall, slender, and olive-skinned man with slicked-back black hair. He introduced himself as Lieutenant Roberto Sal Salvatini. The other individual, who stood over Rosie's bed, was a shorter, scrawny kid with blue eyes and pearly white teeth. He introduced himself as Lieutenant Timothy Winger. From first impressions, Sal seemed outgoing, charismatic, and relaxed, while Timothy seemed shy, reserved, and socially awkward. Let me guess, you two are my new replacements, Jack asked. That's right, we've been assigned to Captain Bacchus, and uh, we were brought here. But my new friend over here was telling me that Captain Backus is no longer the chief of your crew and is now running the whole squadron. That's correct. Jack confirmed. So, uh, should we be reporting to you? Sal asked. I guess, unless, uh, one of you is my new pilot. Nope, I'm the navigator, and Winger here is a bombardier. Sal replied. Is that so? Are you too good at doing your job? Jack asked the two men. Sal replied with, I found the right airfield and hut, didn't I? But Timmy silently nodded his head. Good, good, well... "'Get yourself settled in. "'I want to introduce you to the rest of the guys in a little bit, "'you know, get you acquainted and all, okay?' "'Jack asked the two men. "'Internally, Jack felt that he was going to be sick. "'Normally, Jack would be inclined to be friendly to Sal and Timothy, "'but Sal's ear-to-ear smile and charismatic nature was agitating to Jack. "'It almost seemed out of place on base,' Everyone he had been surrounded with had those kinds of smiles beaten out of them by flack, fighters, and seeing friends and brothers die in horrific ways. As for Timothy, Jack hated his shy nature. He looked so young, inexperienced, and nervous. He knew the boss definitely would not like him. It would more than likely have him do a bunch of practice bombing sorties to see if he would be worth keeping around. But then again, since the boss was no longer in charge or load a bull who was the boss was back in his office sitting at his desk he hadn't begun writing the condolence letters yet and he kept staring at the packet of papers sitting on the side of his desk behind him came a voice that rang oh you must be the new 530th squadron commander the boss looked behind him and saw eric Koth standing in the doorway of the office the boss recognized Koth, but wasn't sure if Koth recognized him. That question went unanswered as Koth proceeded by walking to his desk, saying, It's funny. You look to be all moved in for someone that was just promoted less than a day ago. The other guy didn't even get his name on his desk. No need to pussyfoot around it. I hate leaving things undone, the boss replied. Well, is that so? Koth asked as he sat down in front of his messy desk. The two officers sat face to face with their desks separating them. Before the boss had a chance to say anything else, Koth spoke up by asking, If that were the case, then why have you yet to write out a single letter to the dead or missing men from that mission you botched? The boss was taken aback by the rude nature of Koth's response. Excuse me? You heard me, Captain. Easy there, buddy. Don't think that because I'm new to this office that I will take that kind of talking in tone, the boss replied. Koth, keeping his eyes locked onto the boss, sat forward with his hands now folded on top of his desk and said, Look, I lost two of my best pilots and crews on that Brunswick mission. Not to mention, I had to write 13 letters to mothers and wives of dead airmen from my squadron telling them, that their sons and husbands died a hero's death, when in reality, they died because you wanted to be a big shot and press the brass. You see, you don't know a goddamn thing about what my reasons were. You're right. I don't know. But I can tell you this. There was absolutely no reason for us to bomb Brunswick when it was covered with such a thick soup. You read the weather report. You knew it was a reckless suicide run, yet you did it anyways. I don't know a lot, but I can tell you this. I have known a lot of officers and commanders in my time serving Uncle Sam, and I have only heard horror stories about commanders sending their men to their deaths for some personal glory or an extra stripe on their sleeve. I've only heard of those things, but here I am, looking at such a man in the eyes. The boss's breathing quickened. His eyes were filled with rage. He took a deep breath and said, Listen here, I would watch what you say to me. I made a mistake, and I will live with that the rest of my days. I don't need you reminding me of it. Now, I'll have you know that despite my mistake, I was still promoted by none other than Colonel Poole himself. He trusts me, and he would be hard-pressed to find out that another squadron commander challenged his judgment on who he chose to lead the 530th Squadron. Koth remained silent allowing the boss to realize that Koth wasn't afraid of him and wasn't going to react to his attempts at being intimidating. After about 20 seconds of a pregnant pause, Koth slowly pushed back his chair and stood up. While keeping direct eye contact, he said, People don't last long around here. I have enough faith in God that he'll sort things out. What the hell does that mean, Captain? The boss thundered. Koth shrugged his shoulders and exited the hut, leaving the boss in a state of angst and confusion. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that is down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. In fact, to give a shout out to those who are supporting this podcast, we want to thank Fernando, Reinhold, Benita, Kyle, and Cedric. Thank you guys so much for all your support and your helping this podcast to continue. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. Later that night, Jack was at the cock inn with Timothy, Sal, Parnell, Grant, and Parnell's new co-pilot, 2nd Lieutenant James McDonald. As the day progressed, Jack grew to like Sal, and so did the other officers. The same could not be said about Timothy, however. Parnell and Hillhouse both agreed that there was something off about him. All throughout the day, Timothy acted like a puppy by following Sal around everywhere he went, despite the fact that he had only met him less than 15 minutes before arriving at Jack's hut. Jack even attempted to get to know Timothy by asking him some questions such as where was he from and what did he do before being called up or joining up, but all Jack got were short, vague answers. So far, the only thing Jack knew about the new bombardier was that he was 21 years old, from Miami, Florida, he went to Florida State to be a chemical engineer, and that was it. When Jack asked him how he ended up in the United States Army Air Corps as a bombardier, Timothy's response was, quote, I was forced to during my last year of college. Jack didn't know that was possible. Surely they would have waited for him to finish school, he thought to himself. His entire story and personality was just odd to Jack and he didn't know why Timothy couldn't just leave and find his own group of people to be with. He certainly wasn't sitting with Jack and Sal because he liked them. He looked irritated and bored the entire time he sat with them at the Cock Inn. He wasn't even drinking alcohol, just lukewarm water. On the other hand, Parnell's new co seemed to fit right in. James McDonald or as he was referred to as Slim Jim, stood at six feet tall, had a 20-inch waist, long lanky arms, a youthful face, and blonde hair that had a tint of red in it. He always wore an ornery grin on his face, which made him look like he was always up to no good. Oddly enough, Parnell seemed to take a quick liking to his new co-pilot, despite the fact that he was replacing someone Parnell deeply cared for and was still showing signs of being traumatized from losing Jack chalked this up to the fact that Slim Jim was not only a very likable person, but he was from Parnell's area of the States, Fall River, Massachusetts, which was only 30 miles away from where Parnell grew up. As Jack was sipping on his fourth glass of Irish Red Ale, he listened to the conversation that was unfolding between Sal and Grant. Now, what did you, uh, what did you do before you were called up? asked Grant. I was a uh, school teacher back from Detroit, Sal responded. A teacher? High school? Parnell asked. No, first grade. How was that? Asked Parnell. Well, see, the hours were nice. The job required no heavy lifting. I got summers off and I got to meet lots of interesting people. However, I found out that kids, not for me. Kids, animals they are, horrible. Among the bouts of laughter, Grant asked, what about them was so horrible? First of all, their hands they're always sticky like you'd think the kids were coming out of the womb with an inch of fucking sticky shit all over their hands and that it took 18 years for it to come off all the way cause every time I would collect their pencils and papers there'd always be some sticky shit on the fucking things (laughs) well I can well I can tell you this when you're over Germany you will be wishing you had your hands on sticky pencils and papers Grant responded is it that bad up there? I've heard things, I just didn't know how to take it. Oh, well, it's been bad. So far, we've only had, what, one easy mission out of the ten I've flown so far? Jack said, noticing instantly that Parnell immediately looked uncomfortable with the subject matter. You've flown ten missions? How long have you been here? Sal asked. We arrived at the end of uh, February. Our first mission was to Berlin on March 6th. Jack replied. "'suddenly catching the interest of both Sal and Slim Jim. "'Wait, you you flew to Berlin on your first mission?' Sal asked. "'Yeah. What was that like?' Slim Jim asked. "'It's, um...' Jack paused for a moment, "'and in an instance he was standing back on the tarmac "'underneath a flawless and scar-free bull drinking Butch's coffee. "'Around him were faces of innocence in the purest form.' Jack could see the boss back when he wasn't as uptight and serious. Also around him were Andy, Rosie, Skimpy, and Al. In one moment, Al was kneeling, dressed in his flake clothes with a nervous smile on his face, and in an instant, Al was sitting up against the side of the radio room, his leg mangled and pouring blood. The nervous smile was gone, and now... Unrest, sadness, and horror was in its place. While Jack thought that was a horrible experience, little did he realize at that moment that Al's death would be the catalyst for the many that would come to represent what the air war entailed. Jack, 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 hey, said Parnell, trying to get Jack out of his trance. Jack blinked and slightly shook his head, apologizing for zoning out. The others were understanding of that, and the topic quickly changed. Later that night, while on their way back from their huts, Parnell and Jack were walking together along the road that led back to base. The two men talked movies, music, and sports before Jack said, Hey, uh, I'm sorry for blinking back there. I don't know what came over me. Thanks for getting me out of that. No need to thank me. You have to keep your mind off of that. Off of what? I know what you were doing. I can see it in your eyes. Your mind constantly wants to relive that... Hell. Don't let your mind go there. Once it does, it's hard to come back out. Is that what Chaplain Schwartz told you? Jack asked. Sort of. He said I have to accept that what happened... happened. There wasn't a single thing that I could have done that would have changed the outcome. It was all part of... a bigger plan or something like that. Listen, I'm not doing it justice. I'm fucking it all up. But I'm telling you, you need to go talk to him. I'll make my way there soon, I promise. Jack replied. Good. So, uh, the hell are you going to do about all these replacements coming into your crew? Oh, I don't know. What did you do? Parnell paused, reflected, and replied with, I just treat them like soldiers. What does that mean? Jack asked. I mean, guys like Ears and Compton, those men were like brothers I was supposed to look after, you know? But these new guys, these kids, really, I I just can't see them as anything more than soldiers who have a job to do to ensure that none of my friends and brothers end up in another wooden box or crater. Soldiers, huh? Yeah, that's the way it should be. Get too close and you get attached. Getting attached means you're emotionally bound and affected by their losses. I mean, men like us can't afford to have our judgment crippled because of the people that we lose. See, that's the thing is I can't, I can't shut that off. You know, not like the boss can. Listen, do not compare yourself to the boss, Louis. That's not what I'm talking about. Care like you already do, but you cannot get attached to them. It's not worth it. Jack marinated in these words of advice and simply found them confusing and troubling. He knew that what Parnell was saying was true. It had been true since the first war was ever started. It had been a lesson learned again and again to the point that it became a worn out theme in books on war. However, while it would be easy for Jack to view the new members of his crew as soldiers with a job to do, he wouldn't change his feelings towards the other men, people like Tommy, Willie, Mills, or Beans. They were just as much of the Bull as he was. It was these thoughts and feelings that made Jack question whether or not he'd be capable of leading Loda Bull in a manner that the crew and the rest of the 300th needed him to lead. The boss sat alone in the dark office, staring at the stack of finished condolence letters which were illuminated by the boss's desk lamp, the only source of light in the shadow-drawn room. Looking at his watch, it was 2,100 hours. Reaching into his desk drawer, he pulled out a bottle of Vat-69 whiskey and a single glass and set both on his desktop. Pouring himself a glass, he took a deep breath. Anton? Came a voice from across the room. The boss's skin began to crawl. The hairs on his neck and back began to stand up. He hadn't heard that name in what seemed like a lifetime. He looked up, and standing in front of Fagan's desk was a woman that the boss not only knew, but had been longing for. It was Catherine. She was just as she looked the day of their wedding. Her skin looked healthy and smooth. Her dark hair reflected the light coming from the boss's desk lamp. The shadow that the light cast behind her made him feel that this was all too real. It was as though she were really standing before him. "'Anton?' she called out again. "'Cat?' he called out softly. Catherine's soul-filling smile filled her thin, narrow face like it had on their wedding day. "'Long day?' she asked. "'I... I don't,' the boss fumbled.' She then began slowly approaching the boss and spoke as she did, saying, tell me all about it. You look like you've been through hell. I have. The boss softly responded. What's got you so worn down? Catherine asked as she was now standing next to the boss and proceeded to lower herself behind him, putting her arms around him and bringing him in close. It feels so good to feel you again. The boss whispered, with tears forming in his eyes. I know it does. I miss you. I miss you too. I don't know why you had to go. I don't know why either. I didn't want to go. At this point, the boss looked at Catherine's face. Staring at him with her angelic blue eyes, she asked him, Tell me, what's going on? The boss took in a deep breath stared at his glass of whiskey and with a tear rolling down his cheek responded i i made a very stupid decision that got a lot of people killed Catherine then began softly tickling the back of his head and the base of his neck and continued talking why'd you do it it's it's stupid tell me the boss took in another deep breath, and with his eyes closed, he answered, its It's been hell ever since you left. I can't stand the silence anymore. I find myself slipping into madness if I stay in the silence for too long. When I first heard those sounds of engines, I was convinced that I finally found my place in the world. And I was good at it. Really good at it. I figured I had to move my way up through the ranks if I was going to have a future, so... When I had the opportunity to do something that I thought would impress my superiors, I took it. Well, did you get what you were hoping for? No. I mean, yeah, I got promoted, and now I have a job that will survive even after wartime, but... Before, I had friends, and now I have nobody. I'm sure that's not true. You always had an easy time making friends. Things have changed, Kat. I'm not who I was before. Have you changed too much for me? The boss looked into Catherine's eyes, and as he did, tears began willing up in her eyes. You have, haven't you? No, 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 no. The man that I fell in love with and the man that I left was not like this. No, I'm still here, Kat. I'm still your Anton. I should go. No, 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 please don't, don't go. I'm sorry, Anton. This was not a good idea. Please don't go. The boss opened his eyes. His head was resting on his desktop. With the glass of whiskey still in his hand, he lifted up his head and looked around the room. Seeing that Catherine was gone, leaving him once again in a dark and lonely place. At this, the boss grabbed his glass of whiskey and with a fit of rage threw it against the wall, shattering it. Thank you for listening to Season 2, Episode 2 of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Canso 34 Studios, a DIY project helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies of Europe and World War II. I hope we do it justice. Thank you for listening. It's stay tuned next week for episode three of season two of Snafu, France.